If you are an HR professional, business owner, or at the operations level trying to understand what people want, you may be struggling. Our systems have been shocked, practices have been questioned, and culture is the leading conversation. Let's learn how culture is created, sustained, and why it should be the leading conversation when discussing hiring, training, and retention. This is the foundation of any business, and it's time to address it. So tune in to Let's Talk HR, humanizing the conversation. We tackle topics that influencers of change need to understand and struggle to overcome every day, such as where to start and what the new workforce wants and how to attract and keep positive momentum going. I'm your host, Leanne Lovely. Janelle Benjamin is the founder and chief equity officer of All Things Equitable Incorporated. Using her lived and professional experience to help companies affect systematic change, a trained lawyer, Janelle is no stranger to the diversity, equity, and inclusion space. Having investigated complaints at the Ontario Human Rights Commission, advised professional regulators on fair registration practices for highly skilled newcomers, led corporate DEI initiatives, and implemented groundbreaking legislation programs like the Accessibility for Ontarians with Disability Acts 2005. I'm so excited to talk with Janelle. She is an amazingly talented, brilliant, and wonderful woman, and I'm just thrilled to have her on um, the podcast today. Janelle, thank you so much for being here. I'm very excited about having this conversation with you. Thank you so much for having me, Leanne. It's a pleasure to be with you on your podcast. So why don't why don't we jump right in? Um, tell me a little bit about yourself. Thank you for asking. I am a diversity, equity, and inclusion practitioner from Toronto, Canada. I'm a management consultant, so I support organizations um, and their leadership to. Uh, create equitable, inclusive workplaces, right? So if they've got uh, issues of diversity, how to diversify their workplace, how to uh, create experiences of inclusion, belonging, make people feel welcome in the workplace, um, or just achieve equitable solutions, right? Whether that's pay equity or gender equity, uh, racial equity, you name it, I support them um, with a variety of training and consulting work. That's, that's awesome. And so needed right now um, in, in, in the world. Um, so you are actually the founder and CEO of All Things Equitable, management consulting firm. So how did you come to, I guess, become the founder of this organization? You know, what launched you into doing that? Yeah, there was um, a few things. It was a combination of factors. Um, I was laid off in a pandemic, you know, starting to compete for jobs with the rest of the world, found a fantastic job that I thought was great, um, closer to home and uh, $40,000 less salary. Um, but I still took it because I thought, okay, you know, here's a job, it's closer to home, higher level than the position that had just previously laid me off. I was really, really excited to begin. Um, it was in a field um, that I totally love um, working for, you know, another issue of inclusion at a really, really important entity, eight minutes down the road from my home. And I'd been previously commuting about an hour and a half for, you know, four years to another organization. Oh, wow. um, so I thought, okay, eight minutes down the road, $40,000 less, but, you know, work-life balance, I'll be closer to home, closer to my kids, um, and still, you know, 
at a director level, right? I, I had just been a manager before, but at least I can be um, doing something meaningful uh, to support a community that I, I truly love and hold dear. Um, and then the opportunity was rescinded just on the eve of the pandemic. It was heart-wrenching, um, but what was more heart-wrenching was that they didn't, um, they didn't say, well, you know, we'll revisit your application at the point where we can reopen the, the world. Instead, they blamed it on me. They said that, you know, it was because I was negotiating for myself that, um, you know, the opportunity was being rescinded. I was asking for too much as a woman, you know, I was being greedy to say, well, you know, your range is like $40,000 below my last salary. Is it possible that I could start at the top of your range and not the very bottom? Um, and the fact that, and, and the range was minuscule. The fact that I had suggested that it's just over the top and too much for them, right? I shouldn't be negotiating for myself. Um, so that started me back, you know, now looking for work with the rest of the world and feeling it's just heartbroken. You can't even imagine starting to look for jobs again, putting my application out there. And then, you know, George Floyd is murdered, still, you know, not thinking about entrepreneurship. But the very next day when Amy Cooper, the white woman who was, you know, walking her dog in the park, and she decided that she was uh, going to call the police on Christian Cooper, the black man who was just bird watching. Mm -hmm. um, that lit a fire under me, like the combination of being unemployed in a pandemic, George Floyd, job offer rescinded, and then Amy Cooper, you know, questioning his belonging in the workplace just totally triggered me, right? It was taking me back to the, you know, the places that had terminated me previously, noting, you know, I don't belong there. I don't have what it takes to be in their spaces. And I just thought, okay, here we go again, right? Here we go again right. um, with another person telling a, a black man where he belongs. And I, I just, I was, I was like, okay, that's it. I, I'm never, I don't want to work for anybody again. Um, I'm going to, uh, you know, do my own thing. I've got what it takes. No one's going to tell me where I belong. No one's going to tell me what I'm qualified to do. And I'm just going to work to make the system better, right? Like mm -hmm. we saw George Floyd um, spark this sort of global movement and impetus to um, not just improve justice and policing, but just equity in all of our systems, our health systems, our child welfare system, our workplace education, employment systems, right? So we're, we're working on anti-Black racism and addressing it everywhere. And, and I knew that the experiences that I've had were you know, sometimes related to me because I'm a woman, right? Mm -hmm. um, sometimes related to both the intersection of my woman, womanhood and my blackness, right? The fact that I'm a black woman um, and being told, you know, we no longer need you here or, you know, thanks, but, you know, you shouldn't be asking for more. Um, all of those things were just so dreadfully painful. And I had what it takes, right? You know, I'm a trained lawyer. Um, I'd worked in, uh, you know, different provincial government agencies here in Canada for, very long time uh, supporting organizations with their inclusion initiatives, right? I have the skills, I've got the stakeholder relationships, the policy development, program development, legal training, investigation of human rights complaints under my belt. So I just thought, well, what the heck? Well, you know, if other people can felt, why can't I? So that's sort of the painful journey to, to the, the launch of All Things Equitable. I, listening to you, I got goosebumps. Um, you know, we are, we are a makeup of the experiences that we've had in our life, right? And while my experiences as one, a woman, but also very much a white woman, um, it obviously are very different. And I am very much, and, and I, and I say this, um, somewhat ashamed 
but very much blind to the experiences of the the black community. I, I don't have any knowledge, any understanding of what you've experienced, but again, because I am, you know, a product of my own experiences, um, to the same effect, nobody could understand what it's like to have a mental health disorder growing up and being discriminated, you know, for that. But this is definitely everything that you just explained, everything that you went through, you know, on an emotional side, on a logical side, on a, all of that is so valid and things that we need to, as a society, address, have empathy for, have, you know, conversations around and about because we can only understand the things that we've experienced, but we have to understand that we now have to try to put ourselves in the shoes of others to try to look through the glass, you know, with the eyes of, of others in order to be more open and more understanding that, yeah, we're not doing, we're not doing everything that we can do in order to create a, you know, inclusion and diversity and um, all things equitable society, right? Yeah, absolutely. Empathy is such a huge part of this uh, inclusion conversation, right? A lot of people don't have the ability to empathize with other people. It's sort of like, you know, just move along, let's forget about it, you know, pull yourself up by your bootstraps, everything will be well, just work as hard as the rest of us, and you're not going to have any of these issues, um, and the reality is that uh, meritocracy, you know, that myth of, it, it is a myth, right, that, uh, you know, society and, and things that are happening around us just don't impact people differently, right, the reason that this push for equity is so significant right now is precisely because, um, you know, there's, disparities in our society, right? And there's a power imbalance and a, and a differential um, that certain groups uh, experience based on their racial identity, right? And if you're, if you are not white, um, you experience it. And if you are white, you may not, right? It, it's, it's a blind spot that you may have precisely because of, you know, your, your privileged identity to not have to be experiencing racism, right? Mm -hmm. um, so it, it's hard sometimes for white people to, to understand uh, what, are, what we're talking about when we're saying this is racism, you know, you, that, that horrible state, you're playing the race card um, always comes out or, uh, you know, you say black lives matter and, and you're fighting for your rights and then they're, you know, they're gaslighting you and they're saying all lives matter and you're like, oh God, it's so cringy. You know, we're focusing on black lives and we're talking about um, the reasons that why Black lives need to matter precisely because ours are under attack, right? We saw what happened recently with this, the shooting in Buffalo. You know, we saw what happened with George Floyd and Ahmaud Aubrey and Breonna Taylor. And, you know, I could go on to and name so many more, Amadou Diallo and Mike Brown. And, you know, the names just don't stop. And um, for people to sort of, uh, to say, well, let's just negate all of that. Forget all of that. Forget that, you know, the police are, disproportionately killing you, forget that they're disproportionately arresting you, forget that they're, you know, disproportionate, you, you know, that more of your men, more black men are in prison, right, than are employed in the United States um, and at home with their families. That is a, a very troubling statistic. Um, and we're talking, you know, I'm in Canada, um, but I use this, the data coming out of the States precisely because we don't collect race-based data here in Canada, very bizarre. Um, but bizarre, but not, right? Like it, it makes sense in a system where 
um, people, people are uncomfortable um, when you call things out. They rather kind of hide it under the rug and oh, those problems are happening in the states um, and not here, right? Because your your data looks so so pristine. Um, and you don't actually have any information that you're collecting, but it's important that we start to gather the, the, the information to tell us what we need to do to make those systemic improvements here. And thankfully organizations are, are getting on side. You know, the ones that are working with me are really um, working hard to change things, to do better, to be better, to be you know supportive allies, um, which is exactly what we need, right? We need people with the power and privilege in our, in our society to start to, to spread the wealth a little bit, right? That's what equity is all about um, achieving it for other groups means that um, you know we can't we can't uh, continue to operate in a system that tells us that whiteness is supreme as if it's not really having impacts on us all. It, right, it is. Mm-hmm. Um, it's causing so much harm and disparity in our society in so many different ways in treatment and and in outcomes. How people are actually faring in our society is a direct correlation to their racial identity. Mm-hmm. So it's, yeah, it's important to talk about it. Absolutely. And here's what I don't understand. Um, and bef- actually, before I go on that thought, I want to go back. Um, okay. Because I, I want to, I, I want to make sure that I address something that you, you started off with saying. Um, first, when you, the offer was rescinded, you said that the mm-hmm. company turned around and blamed you. I'm disgusted. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm absolutely 100% disgusted by that. Um because of the fact that I am, my day job is in, you know, staffing, I, I help individuals help, you know, negotiate for what they deserve, what they mm-hmm. are worth, what they, and uh, for anybody listening out there, there is absolutely nothing wrong with going and negotiating on your behalf for what you are worth. And if a yes. company is not willing to come to the table um, you know, to negotiate with you, you don't want to work with that company. If they're going to turn around mm-hmm. and blame you for, you know, trying to, you know, put a value on what you're able to value um, or what you're able to bring to them that, and for them to turn around and blame you, that is, yeah. that is asinine. And um, what was more inhumane about it was the realization that the very next day after they sent me that communication, rescinding the offer, blaming me, the very next day, they closed their doors down for months. The very next day, there was, you know, our entire province went on a a, a lockdown. They must have received notice about it as a, you know, an entity that needed to shut its doors. And instead of saying, so sorry, Janelle, the province is requiring us you know, because of course my my start date was for March 31st, which was beyond the provincial lockdown. Mm-hmm. Instead of saying, you know, we presented an offer that, that was requiring you to start on March 31st, but we're no longer going to be open because of this provincial lockdown due to COVID-19. We'll revisit this at a point where we're able to reopen. We're so sorry. I would have not been as devastated, right. but they were so inhumane um, as, you know, and I, the reason I was negotiating was, and I revealed that I had children I said, you know, I talked to them about the benefits package um, and waiving the, the, the waiting period in order for the benefits to start. I said, you know, I'm currently receiving benefits from my previous employer that had laid me off. I need those benefits for my family. Is, it, is there any way that we can re- waive that probationary period and have the benefits start? Uh, my direct supervisor that I was going to be reporting to, senior director, she said, sure, we'll, 
uh, I'll, I'll take a look at it. I'll take a look at the numbers. We'll see if we can get you to the top of that range uh, or move you up slightly at least so you're not at the bottom and we'll, I'll get back to you on the provision of the benefits. And instead, by the time she'd gone to the men, that you know, the CEO and the HR lead, who was also a man, comes back down that, um, you know, she's, you know, she's asking for too much, right? Like I'm asking to not start at the bottom of the range and I'm asking for benefits for my kids. Um, and the office rescinded and, you know, so sad, too bad. You're, you're being a little bit greedy here. And instead of telling me that you're closing your doors because of the pandemic, you blamed me. That was the most disgusting thing. I think for me um, showed, you know, and I, I, I lambasted them. I sent them an email and I've never done this to any organization ever. I lambasted them. I said, you know, how dare you? I had round after round of interviews, about four of them, met the staff, walked around the building, showed me my office. I went and I went shopping. I bought clothes. I did all these grand things um, that you do, you know, toast with your family when it's like, finally, you got a job because mm -hmm. I was unemployed for almost two years. Um, so I, I did all those things. And then um, I wrote them an email because I was like, how dare you? Like you chastised me in round after round of interview about how inclusive are you and you know do you have the right inclusion mindset and I thought well you know here I am telling you that I've got kids that I'm a woman I'm negotiating I'm I'm racialized and you're questioning my inclusion mindset and this is your your op the way that you operate right you're blaming me I just I let them have it I couldn't stand it <laughs> right no and that's that the, uh. Right. No. And, and, and I coach, you know, em employees all the time. And I say, you're, you're never going to get anything that you don't ask for. Now there's oh. also, there's also the understanding of when negotiations are over, you know, you need to, you need to know when they have ended. Right. Because <laughs> I've also had employees who are continuing to push and push and push and push and push. And it's like, okay, negotiations. Have it's closed right. It's, you know, you need to know when you, when the, you know, when to get up and walk away from the table at this point, mm -hmm. but mm -hmm. there is, you need to be your greatest advocate. Nobody else is going to be that. Sure. So I, I am sorry that that happened to you and that they, obviously the position went away, but the way that they handled yeah. that was, was horrible. Nobody should be treated that way. And, and it's no wonder that, you know, I shouldn't say it's no wonder, but I am so glad that you have now mm -hmm. started on the path that you have started on because yeah. it, it's necessary in this world. It is a hundred percent necessary and we need people like you. Thank you so much. Yeah. I'm, I thought, you know, I fought and I advocated in my professional life as a lawyer for so many different people and individuals and groups and things. It's like, well, why would I not advocate for myself mm -hmm. as well? Why would I not uh, do this professionally and, you know, see what I can do and affect the changes that I know that I can affect um, independently, right? Um, instead of waiting for a job, I'm just going to create my own. And uh, it's, it's definitely worked out. Um, there's lots and lots of clients that I now work with, and I'm quite happy, um, you know, doing this work independently. Yeah. Okay. So now jumping back forward, um, where were we? You are also um, a speaker and part of Black Speaker Collection. Tell me what this is and, you know, elaborate on that for me. So I have a, an understanding of what, you know, what that's all about. Sure. So through my work with All Things Equitable, you know, I do consulting, I do training, and I'll, oftentimes people invite me to do speaking in keynotes 
and things like that. And so the Black Speakers Collection was a, a, a collection that began by a woman by the name of Madison Butler. Um, I believe she's based in the United States, maybe in, in LA somewhere. Um, she decided um, based on lots and lots of, you know, anecdotal information that employers are sharing that, you know, they can't find speakers for predominantly Black History Month events. And not only that, Black speakers were being uh, underpaid, undervalued. Um, you know, if we're offering keynotes, we should be being paid the same as our white counterparts. Um, and so she formed the Black Speakers Collection to sort of aggregate the number of Black speakers um, around the globe on a variety of issues that we can all speak on. Um, so it's sort of like a one-stop shop for employers who are looking for um, a speaker to come and speak on a particular topic at their events, whether it's, you know, technology or um, finance or, you know, anti-racism and equity like I speak on, mm -hmm. um, there's a whole vast collection of people um, that are highlighted through um, through the Black Speakers Collection that are really easy to find. It's a searchable database. Um, it allows employers to go and, and see the, the wealth and the range of talent that are out there and then, um, you know, present proposals and, and things to them so that um, they can come and speak. Um, and it's really compelling us and pushing us as Black speakers to, to know what we're worth, to charge what we're worth, um, to not undervalue ourselves. Um, so it's, you know, sort of win-win, right? It's a one-stop shop for the employer, but it's also a, a great place for us to collaborate. Mm -hmm. There's a Slack channel that we all can talk about our, you know, our engagement. It's just this great collection that allows everybody to um, hold themselves out as the speakers they are on the topics that are within their own domains and their expertise. And at the same time, allows employers to search and find them to, to make those connections so that, you know, you're not having an organization say, oh, I can't find any any Black speakers. Where are the Black speakers? It's like, uh, there's there's over over 2,000 of us already in the database within within days of it opening and launching. Oh, wow. So um, yeah. I will throw, um, if you have a link that I can throw in the show notes, I will throw that in the show notes. So if anybody wants, wants to check that out, they can definitely check the show notes and, and um, yeah, yeah, check out the database and, and information on that. So perfect. That is that's awesome, and I did not know that. Um, again, this is the naiveness of a lot of people out there, but I did not know that there was a struggle for people to find, you know, black speakers. Um, but I guess you know I, when I walk into an event, I'm not. I guess I just I don't notice whether or not the speaker is black or white. I just you know walk in and listen and to the that's speaker. The, and, right but that's the thing leanne so many people right some i should say this properly so many white people don't notice when they are in the majority which is all of the freaking time excuse my language right, right? No, no. You're, you're always in in the majority right but when you're racialized you notice right away when you walk into a space and you're the only one there so, and, and how many times has that happened to me, right? Everywhere I go, uh, I'm always alone, right? Go to university, I'm in a, you know, largely white institution and in 98% of my classes, I'm the only black woman mm -hmm. uh, or the only racialized person. If there's other racialized people, they may be brown, they may be, you know, Chinese looking, Indian, what have you, but I'm usually the only black one. 
um, and sometimes there's there's no other racialized person. And it's really interesting, right? That with respect to speakers, um, how this comes up is that you know you've got panels, right, of always learned people um, that at this point in time, right, where we're talking about diversity, inclusion, equity. Uh, accessibility for everyone. You go to so many events or conferences and things and every single panel member is usually the men are there, they're white men or they're white women and black women and you know Asian women are, are, are and Latino women are largely absent. Um, and that's not because we're not, we don't exist, we're not qualified, we're not you know educated to speak on particular topics. And I think that's what the collection is about. It's It's getting at we can speak on a variety of on a broad range of topics. Look how many of us there are globally. You don't have an access problem, right? The website starts by saying at uh, blackspeakerscollection.com. Uh, it's a community dedicated to closing the wealth gap, solving the pipeline problem, and ensuring that we're, we're no longer an afterthought, right? If you want to diversify your panel, right, and truly have representation, well, here we are, right? Come and make sure that you're you're doing the right things proactively to make sure that we're not absent from places where we, we absolutely should and could be, right? right? If you want to balance the wealth in society and, and really create equity, then you need mm -hmm. to, to think about it everywhere. Yes, and, and it's, it's, you made a really valid point. If I walk yeah. into a room and I am the only white person, and mm -hmm. it, it happens rare, very rarely, you know, I live it, it very rarely. Yeah. But I notice immediately and I go, oh, Okay. It, it, it obviously it's because it happens so rarely for me that right. I immediately go, okay, I'm going to be recognized or noticed immediately. I'm, I'm right. Gonna stick out. <laughs> I am a blonde, really pasty, white, blue eyed woman. People are going to know. Well, I assume people are going to notice me because I'm going to stick out. Yeah. The night here's another thing that I notice. Advertisements have sh have completely changed. You no longer see advertisements with just white people on them. Mm -hmm. People they society has finally finally gotten smart and now they have um interracial families. If you have it's a picture of a family, they now are showing interracial families. They are now showing mm -hmm. a variety of races on advertising when they have people on it mm -hmm. finally and this just I just started noticing this what over like the last two years but prior to that all advertisements where they actually had people on the advertising it was always white people mm -hmm. it was never it was never interracial or race you know it was never representing any other race than than white for the longest time yeah you also see that now in more television shows that are coming up where you're seeing interracial couples you're seeing more um, diversity in the people who are being cast in tv shows so it's yeah. actually representing a more vari a variety of the different races that there but first Name one show when you were growing up that had any interracial or that was, yeah, any interracial couples or friends, right? Honestly, that was almost impossible. You might, you know, the most interracial shows that I can think of are like the Jeffersons, you know, George and Weezy had like the, the white 
or sorry, the black woman upstairs, Florence, I think her husband was white. Um, in real life, that was a true, that was, uh, that's Lenny Kravitz's mother. So, you know, it's a true, true to life story because Lenny Kravitz is biracial. Um, and I also think about, um, uh, not good times, sorry, it was the Jeffersons and something else. Oh, different strokes. Okay. Different strokes was, you know, Arnold and his brother Willis, two black children who were adopted by the by Mr. Drummond. He was the rich, wealthy white man, right? Okay. Um, and it was, you know, that kind of comedy. What you talking about, Willis? Um, <laughs> and he had Kimberly, his daughter. They were, you know, the, the the rich, wealthy white family adopting the poor, impoverished black children and saving them from the ghetto. You know, other than that, right. um, there and wasn't anything and again what is that saying the rich white man mm. saving the poor black boys right and even george and wheezy was like you know we're moving on up we you know we're, we're rich now because they were dry cleaners you know he had a business and mm-hmm. um was able to move into this penthouse in the sky this you know elite building apartment building right. where um this black woman was married to a white affluent man and could afford to live there mm-hmm. right so um, again, reinforcing some problematic um, tropes and stereotypes and things about who we are and what we have access to. Right. But it was it was funny, you know. Right. And again, I'm not <laughs> I'm not slamming the, but this. Yeah. But as you know, as a society, we have things have drastically it's changed, and we need to now have you know for my child for you know the children that are being raised. You know, I love my daughter right now. Is it a it is a perfect age she literally is at that age where when she looks at people she sees no difference she literally Mm -hmm. sees no difference she sees um you know she'll this this is the conversation I sometimes have with her she'll she'll be on a playground and um there was a um I'm not exactly sure what their true nationality was um but they did not speak English this little mm-hmm. girl didn't speak English. I could hear her talking to her parents and she was speaking in another um, another language. And she mm-hmm. came over to me and she says, Mommy, I'm trying to talk to that little girl. She doesn't talk right. I said, well, she speaks another language. She goes, what's that? And I'm, I, it's, it's, an, it's a different dialect. I don't, I don't, how do you explain this to a four-year-old, right? Okay. And I said, but you can still play with her. She goes, okay. So they just, you know, stare at each other and, and, run around and play the innocence of that is it's so pristine you don't they don't learn that there is a difference or that you know that there is any difference in them until they go to school and then children start to you know talk or there's that one instance where a child says something that they heard their parents say and all of a sudden they come home and they make a comment and you go, oh my God, where did you hear that? Like, that's not okay to say. And then you have to start going through that there are different races out there that, you know, yes, children, sometimes they look different. They have different color skins because, you know, we that's just the way that it is. And then all of a sudden that becomes that learned, you know, thing. But we're not born with the indication that there is anything different between any of us, because under that skin, under that, we're not, there is no difference. Yeah. I would say, I would agree with a lot of that. Of course, we're not born um, 
with a recognition that we're different or expectation that we're different. But studies do indicate that even babies, right, they start to see color, I think, as early as three to four weeks. Yes. And my daughter and, and most kids, I shouldn't just, I won't just talk about my own kids, but I'll start with my daughter. My daughter, I, she just turned four this year and uh, she already knows that she's brown. Mm-hmm. Um, she says she, you know, she identifies that her dolls are, are different colors mm-hmm. um, and she, and I make it a point to introduce her to a variety of, co- of dolls of, of all races and skin colors and ethnicities and things. But when I see her gravitating toward a doll more that doesn't look like her, it lets me know already that the world is already conditioning her to believe less of herself. So I, you know, tell, start to tell her how beautiful, look at the the black doll and she's pretty just like you. And, you know, you start to do those types of things. Um, Studies have shown, I don't know if you've seen, and maybe you can put this in your show notes as well, the doll test. The doll test is a famous test that's been done, um, I think from the 30s or 1940s, um, repeatedly in different contexts. It's been done in Italy, it's been done in the United States, it's been done in Germany. Um, And what it does is it introduces um, a series of dolls, black and white dolls, Mm -hmm. to groups of four-year-old children in a variety of um, countries. And uh, you, no matter what language they're speaking, um, when the child is introduced to the black doll or the white doll, the, you know, the questioner always asks the same set of questions. Um, which doll is, is pretty? The, the white child or, or whatever the, the race of the child is, black children or white children are exposed to the same test. They always invariably say the, the white doll is pretty. Which child is, is, is ugly? They'll identify the black doll. Which doll is smart, the smart doll, the intelligent doll? The, you know, uh, which doll is the good doll? which doll is the bad doll and study after study and time after time they've done this in the 40s they've done this in the 60s I think they did in the 2000s um, and it's on YouTube um, you can put this in the show notes it shows you repeatedly how children are constantly identifying the white doll as good as beautiful as better than the black doll and the black doll is bad and naughty and angry and all of that and it lets us know that from a very early age, we think that our children don't understand racial difference, but they absolutely do. So we do need to talk to them about it even before they enter school age. You know, when my son was going to kindergarten, I felt silly for for doing this, but I I was terrified, right? I thought he's some kid, you know, by the time he gets to grade one is gonna be hurling the N-word at him and I better prepare him, right? You're going to hear this word that you're not supposed to even know exists anymore. Um, and what should you do if you hear this word? What does it mean? And you should talk to your teachers about it. But I've had to have that conversation with my black son right. very early on when he was, you know, going into school because I knew that that was going he was going to be exposed to that word. And lo and behold, you know, he's entered grade three, and that word has come up in the school year this year. Um, the principal's called me because you know she knows I do this work and. It's, you know, Janelle, the word has come up among the, the boys in the school, but of course, you know, the white boys, they didn't mean anything by it. And it's like, okay, wait a second now there, principal, um, let's talk about this. So it happens, kids understand racial difference, difference. We do need to talk about them early. You know, the system of white supremacy is conditioning us all. So, you know, whether they're exposed to books or movies or TVs or just 
even their tablets and you know smartphones my kids have them they're swiping but they're learning and they're seeing you know little girls dressed up as princesses and playing with dolls and even when we're reading her like abc book you know the the princess on or q is for queen when we get to the q is for queen it's a little white girl with blonde hair and she's got the little crown on and again it doesn't represent who she is or reflect her so she's internalizing these messages and we all do and we, we're just not conscious of it so i think yeah. it's just incumbent on all of us to become aware of, of the need for diversity in children's books in children's educational materials movies things that they're exposed to if we do have more representation then we're going to deconstruct some of that thinking that whiteness right. is is the dream yeah and you again you you yeah you just i learned something right there um these are things that i again i grew up not realizing I grew up in a tiny little town that had, I think, I had two black people in my high school. I was completely, you know, shell-shocked when I joined the army when I was 17 and I went and all of a sudden I was like, oh my God, I have no experience in the world whatsoever. And when I say that my daughter doesn't see, you know, color, she doesn't see differences, that's not what I mean. She, yes, of course she sees that but she's not, she doesn't, she's not conditioned by my husband or myself or my, my brother is married to, um, you know, she calls herself, you know, she, she says I'm, you know, brown and her cousin is, you know, this you know, beautiful, you know, mixed child, you know, and she, she when she sees that, you know, I, I'm, I'm thrilled that she's growing up in a world where there is more diversity where there is more knowledge and education around that. Is it perfect? No. I, there's not going, we're not going to hit a perfect world for probably not in my lifetime. But I'm thrilled that she is growing up in a world where there's more education on that than, than the world that I grew up in. Um, it's a weird world too, though, because not only are we talking about race now we're also talking about things like I identify as a boy yet I was born as a girl these are all things that I'm I'm scared out of my mind on how am I going to explain those things right I mean these are just we're, we're I'm entering into uncharted territories but I think we're all entering into uncharted territories when it comes to the world and the shift but I'm extremely excited because like you I have felt discrimination for a total different reason and it was when I experienced that that I truly kind of went wow I'm here I am for all intents and purposes a very privileged white woman experiencing discrimination because I was born with a mental health disorder I can't imagine if I was simply born with a different color skin and discriminated because of that yeah it's um there's so much so much hate in the world and unnecessarily right we we focus on aspects of difference that don't actually mean very much a lot of it is just socially constructed like gender and race right like mm -hmm. there is 
we wouldn't know what being a woman was if society didn't tell us what women should do or what women should be. And um, those definitions of, you know, what's black and what's right, white and what's, you know, even that is is blurry, right? Because as you said, there's, there's more interracial or biracial children, um, interracial marriages, biracial children, um, and the skin color variations um, are, you know, in my own family, my own black family, it's a complete rainbow of skin colors and hair textures. And, you know, yet everybody might identify themselves as black. So what is black and what is, what is white? And, you know, ultimately we're all just people, the, the humanity um, of us all should just take over. Um, we should all, you know, aspire to be as, as we once were as children when, none of these sort of constructs touched us, right? Like white supremacy or, you know, race and gender and all of these things, skin color and, you know, what makes us a boy or what makes us a girl. I'll never forget, I'll tell a funny story. <laughs> um, as a child, um, I don't think I understood that I was a girl, right? I don't, I really think my parents did a really good job and that's probably why, I, you know, I strive to be very fair and equitable and balanced. I didn't understand that I was different. Of course, people told me that I was a girl and my mother would wear, put me in dresses and all of those things, but I didn't understand the difference. And I would, I was, I would, what, what would you call back then a tomboy, right? Mm -hmm. I'd play with my transformers and I would play with my Hot Wheels and I would, um, you know, watch the cartoons and the things that the, the quote unquote boy, boys liked, right? Um, I didn't want girly toys. I didn't want dolls. I just, I wanted, you know, my, my lunch pail was uh, a Star Wars lunch pail. And, and that's the one I wanted. My mom wanted to buy me a pink one or a purple one. And I wanted, I wanted that Star Wars lunch pail, just for an example. My mom, so I my went, mom, my, yeah. mom, my mom would put me in dresses and then she would find me at the end of the driveway in a mud puddle and be like, you got it. <laughs> yeah. So I'll never forget there's, you know, I grew up in an apartment building, uh, you know, behind the building, there was a, a park and I was at the park with my dad this one day and, you know, I'm playing and I'm running and it's hot outside and I'm jumping and I'm having the time of my life. Right. I'm with the boys. I'm rough housing. We're climbing trees. We're swinging over the Creek and stuff like that. And I, you know, the boys took off their shirt and I took off my shirt and I'm running and I'm, I'm bareback and the boys are like pounding their chest. You know, George of the Jungle was out at that time and I'm pounding my chest and I'm doing all these things. And I'll never forget at one point, my dad, you know, I stopped for some water or something just for like a quick moment. And he looks and he's like, don't you think you should put your shirt on? And I was like, no. And I just took off running, like bolting and crazy and never thought about it until I was much older. And I reflect back now on my dad saying, don't you think you should put your shirt on? And I'm, I'm, I'm thinking how mortified my father must have been, mm -hmm. right? That his daughter is, you know, running around topless with the boys, climbing trees, doing all these things without her shirt on, just completely bareback um, and, and without a care in the world, right? I was mm -hmm. totally carefree and not realizing that that's not something socially acceptable for a girl to do, mm -hmm. right? You should put your clothes on. And really and truly, <laughs> if my daughter were to do that right now, I'd probably be mortified and I'd probably run and put her clothes on. Um, so it's really interesting how at some point along the way, I lost that sense of self that was me mm -hmm. and I became the girl, quote unquote. Mm -hmm. um, and I wear dresses and I wear makeup and I brush my hair. Like I would never 
go topless anywhere and I wouldn't want my daughter to go topless you know what I mean like well she's only four years old and I'd put I'd be like Dory put your clothes on you know so you know really- your body has changed a little bit since that time <laughs> I mean <laughs> definitely but at the same time right what it, the the social acceptability of you know at that time, boys wearing the, without wearing their shirts. Now, you know, there's signs on the store entries, you know, you can't enter without a shirt on and things have sort of changed a little bit. But for girls today to just do that and run around bareback, I think it would be just impossible, right? You know, but and it's it sh- because of what we put upon them. Right. But we, it should, at that age, what? Mm-hmm. Boys and girls' bodies are not very different. <laughs> no, they're, not. Mean, the, they're not at all. It's, well, not I mean, at all. What, it's not until they hit puberty that, obviously, I, I mean, I'm, obviously that yeah. they change drastically. But, I mean, what would be the big deal? It, you can't yeah. tell the difference. Uh, no. And, you know, it's funny that you say you didn't, you know, you couldn't tell the difference between. But I remember a conversation with my, my nephew and we asked him, you know, how do you tell the difference between a boy or a girl? And he's like, well, their hair. Boys have short hair. Girls have long hair. Well, now my 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 dad's wife has short hair. She's yep. she always had really short hair, and we said, "Well, what about Yaya?" Sure, they call her Yaya. What about Yaya? Oh, well, she's a girl, but she has short hair. Mm. Well, yeah. and I remember him going, "Huh," and really thinking about that, and you know, kind of going, "Well, oh, oh no, my whole theory's been blown up." Like, <laughs> like, now like what, what is a girl? <laughs> right now, yeah. what? Yeah. <laughs> You know, so it's it's always interesting when when kids you know start to formulate like how do you tell a boy and a girl? And I've never mm-hmm. asked my I've never asked my four year old, but she always seems to just know. Because I'll say, is that a boy? Yeah, that's a boy. Is that a, is that a girl or a boy? That's well, that and she just always seems to know. And I'm like, yeah. how is she figuring it out? Like because of the way that we we treat our kids, right? We put them in colors that are different. We, you know, like my kids, my daughter has everything in her closet that's like pink and purple, not because I, I want it that way, but that's what's on the rack at the store. Right. Um, but my daughter, you know, if I, my daughter's favorite color is orange. Yeah. Like I, I've never, but how hard is it to find orange clothing? Right. I have never <laughs> met anybody whose favorite color is orange. Yeah. And I remember when she declared that and I'm like, oh, that's a face. No, <laughs> it's been orange for from the very beginning since she was like two. She's like orange, 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 orange. And I'm like, how am I going to incorporate orange into her bedroom? <laughs> like, <ugh. laughs> yeah, I mean, but you're right. When we buy clothes for our kids. Yeah, it's so, crazy. OK, there's so- a lot to think about yep so okay um we're coming to time um the question of the season if you could go back to your younger self and give yourself advice when would you go back to and what advice would you give yourself well you're asking me after i tell you that story so yeah i'm gonna go back to my younger self who's running around without without her shirt on um who thinks she could run as fast as the boys, jump as high as the boys and do anything that the boys would do. And I would tell her that she's absolutely right. She can do anything that the boys can do. I don't think I would change a thing. I wouldn't tell her to put her shirt on. I would leave her in her her complete 
innocence and and um i i know that little girl knew that she was equal and as good as anything that the boys could could do or throw at her and and i think that's still the case even now now maybe i think i'm better than <laughs> for the better sex um so that's my bias now now that i'm not that little girl anymore who believed in equality fiercely now i think that women are far superior you know just joking um but if i could go back to another period let me answer the question sincerely if i could go back to another period in time i'd probably go back to you know the person i was in my early 20s and just reassure that girl that she's capable um of doing everything on her own um and not don't grab i would say don't graduate from school and get a job I would say graduate from school and create a job. You have what it takes. You're going to get some work experiences along the way that are going to help you guide others. Um, but at the point where the workplace starts hurting and people start hurting you, um, believe in yourself. Know that you have exactly what it takes to create your own job. That's what I would say. Awesome. That is, <laughs> that is, that is great advice. Great advice. Yeah. Well, Janelle, thank you so much for taking the time um, to talk with me today. This has been such an amazing conversation. I could talk to you for hours. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, it was it was good. A nice lighthearted break in my day. I appreciate you listening. I appreciate all your listeners who've listened to the end. Um, thank you so much again for having me. Yeah, you have a wonderful day. Okay, you too. Thank you again for listening to Let's Talk HR. I appreciate your time and support. Without you, the audience, this would not be possible. So don't forget that if you enjoyed this episode, to follow us, like us, or share us. Have a wonderful day.